You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to be joined by Professor Philip Zelico, a good friend. He is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. Since January of this year, he's led the COVID planning group, a group that we'll hear more about in a moment, begun early in the year to explore the concept of a 9-11 style commission focused upon the pandemic that we've experienced here in the United States, principally and beyond. Truth and disclosure, I'm part of the planning group that Philip has assembled, and I've been delighted to be part of that. Philip served as executive director of the 9-11 Commission when that was formed in the beginning of 2003, concluded its work in mid-2004, had profound impact institutionally and politically in grasping what had happened, bringing the truth forward, but also connecting on a bipartisan basis to Congress and to the American public on what kind of big measures were needed to take account of the implications of that profound event. He also served as executive director of the Carter Ford Electoral Reform Commission 2001, which resulted in passage of the Help America Vote Act 2002, one of the landmark legislative pieces on elections in the United States. He's had a long and distinguished career in academics as well as in service to the country. He served under five administrations, senior positions in Georgia Herbert Walker Bush, presidency, George W. Bush presidency, as well as in the Clinton administration, Reagan administration, and more recently serving on the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board and the Defense Policy Advisory Board during the during the Obama era. Philip, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's really delightful. Glad to be with you, Steve. Let's start out with some ver- fairly basic questions for you that I'm sure you hear all the time. Why would we need a commission of the kind that you're considering on the pandemic and what we've experienced. Why do we need this? You would find it valuable for two kinds of reasons. The first reason is to get a much firmer foundation to understand what happened and why on a whole series of issues. There is a lot of excellent journalism out there, a lot of different sources. But if you really turn to a a systematic effort that interviews hundreds of people, not dozens of people, and examines records, not just in Washington, but in state and local offices around the country, uh, working with private industry, uh, looking at the global issues, learning from other countries' experiences, it might be possible to come out of this trauma, the largest trauma to hit the country and the world perhaps since 1945 with a stronger core foundational understanding of what happened and why. which And since that understanding will be a touchstone for politics and culture for generations, uh, getting a good foundation for that with a really serious effort could be enormously valuable, as it wasn't the 9-11 case, but in this case, much more so. It's a very complex crisis, and the narratives about it, as some of our advisors pointed out this past week in the Washington Post, the narratives about it are, tend to be quite simplistic and just capture small parts of the story. The other big reason you might want a national COVID commission is to look forward, to 
pull together an agenda for how our system can be made stronger, not just for another future pandemic, but for any other national emergency. I think it's generally conceded of among the hundreds of people we've now talked to that this crisis was like an x-ray that exposed every fracture and fault line in the American and global system of public health and in our ability to handle a large national emergency. Uh, some people say, well, that, yes, pre they blame President Trump and whatever one thinks about President Trump. Almost all the people we talk to who were involved in this crisis see this as being much, much bigger than that. And a lot of other countries had difficulties too, in many ways. There are issues of understanding the threat that we faced, of tracking it, of even knowing when the disease had arrived in the United States, of mounting adequate testing programs and biosurveillance, of organizing appropriate national responses, of the deficiencies and faults all over the American public health system, of the problems in figuring out who's actually making decisions in the crisis, Many people at the state level telling us that they felt abandoned by the federal government, uh, other people and feeling like there was no one who was really weighing and balancing the trade-offs of what to do the way they should have. The result being that constantly it felt like we were reacting to things and having trouble getting on top and ahead of these issues in the way we should have, with the possible exception of the vaccine development, which itself is a very complex story that few people understand. So if you then take that forward into an agenda, an agenda that looks forward, you could lay down markers of here are the kinds of functions of government that Americans can reasonably look for and that we should build up coming out of this crisis. I mean, we itemize about seven basic functions that we think can be dramatically improved if we learn properly from this crisis. I get that this is a trauma that touches almost everything everywhere in a way. And as you say, it exposes weaknesses across the board and you're going to have to make some choices in how you designate what is most important and how to concentrate your effort. Otherwise, this would, this would become unmanageable. Set that question aside for a moment. I wanted to ask you your approach, which was to get out of the box fast talk to a lot of different people with lots of insights coming from quite different walks and get them to tell their story and share their insights, which is, a, is by definition itself a pretty exciting and fascinating enterprise. But you did that and you wrapped, you, you rolled up those. So what were the surprises? What was the response to the concept of this commission and what kind of advice did you receive that was most powerful in that period. Thanks, Steve. It's really hard to generalize about what we've learned uh, already. And we haven't been conducting a commission investigation because there's no commission. All we've been doing as a planning group is trying to talk to a lot of people so we can properly scope what a commission should look at, how we should frame our questions, what kinds of things we need to look into. But in doing that, we've now held about 130 listening sessions with more than 200 people not only across the United States, but also in Europe. And it's just been a revelation to all of us who participated in some of those sessions. I think that have also found these, a lot of these sessions revealing, and many of these people are longstanding experts in this field. I think, if anything, we're, we're surprised by the depth and gravity of the apparent institutional failures. I mean, we knew people had struggled and that things were difficult, but when you actually talk to people who are on the front lines, the depth and character of the failures are things that they find stunning. 
we were just talking to someone yesterday, a prominent expert at, who leads a research center that's involved in testing issues. And just on the issues of testing, he says to this day, he, he is simply staggered by what happened. And it almost, to him, it, it practically passes understanding. And which is one of the reasons he, like so many people we've talked to, are eager to see a commission that gets into just understand you know, how, how it is that not only were we not testing to see if the disease got in the United States, we were actually trying to keep people from conducting tests. People who were trying to conduct tests, we were stopping them from conducting tests. But I could give illustration after illustration. Many Americans, for instance, are reading now about this controversy over the origins of the virus. What they, I think they, don't, they are not aware, and they think that this is, uh, you have some right-wingers who last year started accusing China, and now it turns out that maybe there's something to look at there. That's a deep misunderstanding of the story, for example. Deep misunderstanding. What people don't know is that there have been areas of virology research and different programs for how to conduct biosurveillance that have been going on for 10 years all over the world. And these programs have been controversial in the biology community, in the science community, for nearly 10 years now. There's been a lively debate as to what programs to have, what kind of research and collection should be conducted in those programs, what the dangers and hazards might be in those programs. And there were big scientific debates and symposia so that when this crisis broke and people understood where and how it had produced, there were actually as were a whole community of scientists who right from the beginning were uneasy, shall we say, about the situation. And to this day, we have not really organized an appropriate scientific investigation to work through all the possible hypotheses, which is one of the things that the commission supports doing. Just to fix on this one, just one, this one thread of the story, China last year in October 2020 passed an extraordinary biosafety law. It's a biosafety law that is more stringent than anything that exists in the United States of America, precisely in order to be super careful about lab safety as bioresearch is proliferating in China, but of course it's also proliferating all over the United States. So this is actually a, a crisis in which we're seeing vividly brought to life for hundreds of millions of people, both some of the amazing promises of the biorevolution, mRNA vaccines, for example, practically miraculous, inconceivable 10 years ago. mRNA vaccines promise the hazards and dangers of certain kinds of biological research also need to be reckoned with. And interestingly, the biological research people are worried about was in this case actually designed to prevent pandemics. <laughs> that was the whole focus of those research programs. Right. Those gain of function. That, that and even the efforts to collect these virus samples, whether or not you conducted that further research on them, just the collection of such samples. Like, why are people doing that? A primary reason they were doing that and, and why so many good research institutions were supporting this was pandemic prevention. Now, that doesn't mean that any of the samples that were collected have been proven to be the source of this pandemic, but the pandemic did result from the kinds of viruses that were also being collected for research to prevent pandemics. So the, the point is, is that just in this one illustration, Steve, it just shows is the crisis is calling out issues that really need a serious exploration to help educate and inform people. And here's what happened. 
Here's why it happened. Look what this shows about how biological research works, what the issue, how global it is, what the issues are in the production of these miracle vaccines, which is also a global issue, production and distribution. At the same time, what are the risks, what are the risk benefit calculations we need to make in this research? All these issues can be framed for not only backwards looking ex examinations, but also forward looking prescriptions by a national COVID commission. I want to talk to you about how one might organize such a thing, how to validate it, what's the congressional tie in, what's the White House tie in, these big issues in terms of the structural pieces of this. And we can talk a bit about the the treacherous political environment we find ourselves in today. Before that, you've already been able to sort of reach a point where you're saying, if a commission were to happen, based on what we know right now, this is how you would divide up and, and, and bound the universe of topics. Just give us a quick, very quick kind of top line. How are you carving up the universe? Here's a, just a way for your listeners to think about it. You can have, you can cut this up into five, seven, nine task forces. But think about the whole point of the task forces is to study seven things a government ought to be able to do in a massive crisis of this kind. And by the way, these seven things apply to the United States, but they also apply globally. They apply to a pandemic, but all seven of these things apply to any huge emergency. These are things any ordinary person would expect their country to do facing a massive emergency. One, size up the danger. Two, map the landscape of vulnerability to this danger. Who's most at risk? If there was a flood, right, you'd look to see who's in the floodplain. So map the landscape of vulnerability. Three, track where and how the danger moves and evolves, right? Track the enemy. Four, with urgency, devise and implement intelligent defenses. In the first instance, those are social and behavioral defenses, like People should change the way they behave to avoid the virus if they can. You would design those defenses in, a, in some way that's practical, that takes the world's people living in their businesses into account. Fifth, you would design and implement plans to defeat the danger. So you're doing things to help people move in ways and take actions to help shelter themselves. But to defeat the danger in the case of a pandemic, your counter weapons are biological. Some of my defenses are social and behavioral. I'll try to run away from the virus. But my ultimate defenses are biological, therapies, vaccines, where I defeat the microorganism at the microorganism level. And so you have to design and implement plans to do all that, which are complicated from R&D, production, distribution, all of that. Sixth, you'd obtain resources and train people that are needed to do these things whether that's masks, PPE, reagents, swabs, all sorts of supplies. And of course, we're discovering that, in fact, the whole health industrial base of the country is in, was in deep trouble that was exposed by this crisis. And these are everybody's got stories about this. So sixth, you'd basically obtain the stuff you need to mount these defenses. Seventh, you would communicate to people about the danger, about what's being done, and how they can help. You would have good, effective communication about the emergency. So step back. So those are seven, I think all seven of those seem like reasonable things people would expect a government to do. So the, partly a commission can be organized around, okay, how do we do on each of these seven tasks? And how can we do better in the future on each of these seven tasks? Do you have clear in your mind uh, at least a draft 
headline storyline that that cuts across this in terms of what is it that this adds up add, it adds up to when someone says to you okay if, if we invest in this massive enterprise <laughs> tell me philip what's the you know what's the headline going to be coming out of this actually it's pretty simple we thought we were prepared for this stuff we totally were not one headline for sure is we kind of thought we were ready for this and what we all our preparedness disintegrated on contact with the enemy almost instantly actually including like if you were to look before the crisis and ask which people are going to be in charge of managing the crisis which people in HHS and CDC and then a month later uh, those people have been substantially sidelined already just about everything in the pan pandemic defense playbook had been thrown out the window within like the first week so one headline that's just obvious is we thought we were kind of ready for this and we totally weren't, which then implies, well, um, that's not good enough. And we ought to really do some serious damn stock taking so that our government learns better to get ready. Here, here, but here's another headline I, I would offer. I think that first headline I've just recited is one that most of your listeners have some experience with and probably somewhat agree with. And it's kind of a depressing headline. Let me offer, though, another headline. And, and you asked earlier about surprises, and, and this is actually one of them that's very heartening, is the more we talk to people, actually, a lot of what you discover is there were actually a lot of amazing Americans with amazing know-how, energy, and ingenuity who actually were coming up with ideas all over the country for what to do, many of them excellent. Uh, some of them improvise and break through Basically, when the, when the existing system fell apart that was supposed to combat this, all sorts of Americans and states all over America improvised solutions, many of them heroically and with great skill. So one of the heartening sides of the story is actually the story doesn't kill your faith in American ingenuity and know-how. It actually kind of restores a lot of that faith. And then what frustrates us as we talk to a lot of people and what frustrates those people is sometimes it's hard for them to to get that ingenuity and know how to make the difference in the ways it could. I mean, just to give you one illustration of what I mean, there are all these stories of Americans springing into action to make a 95 mask. Several American firms immediately leapt into action. By the way, investors putting up millions of dollars right away to help make N95 masks because it was the country so vitally needed it and they didn't want to be dependent on supply chains from China. Those people then found that they had trouble ever selling those masks. They had trouble even hardly getting, the government wasn't buying. The hospitals weren't buying. The Americans who on their own ingenuity bought the machine tools, designed all the stuff to do this, then found it enormously difficult to break into the established routines of procurement that seemed to work well in peacetime, but were already falling apart. So here you're seeing everything that you admire about America coming to the front lines, and then they're being enormously frustrated. And some of these businesses right now are going out of business. They're going bankrupt. Even right now in May of 2021, because the government isn't getting its act together to buy their masks in order to stockpile and build up an American manufacturing base for this kind of protective equipment, which we so vitally need. There are a number of stories like this. There are stories like this in the testing world, which fill you with admiration for the Americans you're talking to and then kind of make you burn to get a commission in place that will help break these log jams and help, us, help our institutions 
unleash the talents of the Americans that are out there now. Yeah, I mean, they, a couple of remarks on that. I mean, one, during Ebola, we saw a bunch of, of well-intentioned, very talented folks spring forward, particularly out of the West Coast, out of the sort of tech world, out of new philanthropy, eager to do lots of things and run away soon thereafter, feeling rather scarred by the experience. They spent prodigious amounts of money, couldn't figure out where their fit was, et cetera, et cetera. This time around, I mean, as you know, from, you know, you've talked to Michael Lewis, you've read The Premonition. There are these individuals who are these remarkably brilliant mavericks who go in and out of government, who carry powerful ideas. But your question around wholesale failure with some exceptions on certain other things, like the accelerated development of vaccines. Yeah, many heroic improvisations. In unpacking and these improvisations and the sort of nature of our culture that people do spring forward and come up with remarkable ideas. But when you look at that, the overwhelming pattern of failure, it comes back to a couple of things, it seems. We have a shambolic public health system that was teetering. We may have been estimated to be the most well-prepared for a disaster in the world, but who was looking carefully at the 3,500 understaffed, underfinanced, data, data deficient, technologically primitive public health authorities across counties and states and territories in this country, which they were overrun and there were valiant and courageous people at that level, but it was shambolic. It remained shambolic. We're trying to fix it. Nobody could have figured also that we would have a, a national leadership that would abdicate and go anti-science. And also we had a political, no one could have predicted that our political culture was going to grab on to the divisions in our political culture. We're going to grab on to these behavioral issues and, and, and the whole question of, is there a problem? Is there a pen? I mean, that we had within our political culture debates going on about the most fundamental questions of, is there a problem even here? And, and that goes on. And those pathologies are complicated and tough to come to terms with. I, I would expect that somehow trying to weave a, an explanation into a commission is, is going to have to come back to those. And the other thing I'd say is this virus is a exceptionally pernicious creature. And it continues to become even more pernicious, faster, more pernicious. So the battle, the enemy we face when we're not thinking about the enemy is us, and the enemy is our leadership, and the enemy is our political culture, and our shambolic public health system comes up with, you know, we face a, we face a, an enemy that is truly exceptional. So the battle of humans against deadly microorganisms is an ancient battle. In the great pandemic of 1918, the, the great influenza pandemic of 1918, is in many ways, again, a, this is a, a story of the first generation of public health experts created in the world. The first people who even knew what bacteria was, now using their primitive tools to combat the terrible pandemic. That's the story of 1918, man against nature, man at, for, at, for the first time wielding public health tools as primitive as they were heroically, often failing, uh, tens of millions of lives lost. That's 100 years ago. Many little outbreaks since then. Here we are, we get, it's the end of 2020. We get another larger pandemic outbreak than those outbreaks. 
Except now we have the advanced system, the advanced tools that have been the fruits of a hundred years of medical investment, research, and innovation. And the fascinating things about this crisis then is all the fancy hardware, but nevertheless facing an enemy that was not quite as deadly as the influenza pandemic of 1918. It's still, it's quite the good estimates put the death toll worldwide already at 10 million, more or less, and probably will grow quite a lot more in the next year. In other words, we had a, a century's worth of advances, but the institutions did not keep up with the hardware. The, the human organizations didn't keep up with the hardware. Our greatest success story, of course, is a triumph of technological ingenuity. Our greatest failures are actually the failures of the human institutions to have advanced at the, at the level the technology has advanced. That's in a way the opportunity for this commission. It's this commission then that can try to take stock from that and help the, the human institutions keep up and keep pace with the benefits and risks of the science. Can I ask you, we've got 600,000 Americans dead today from this virus. Arguably, the majority of those were preventable. And we're sailing, if you believe, if you listen to Chris Murray or some of the other modelers, you know, even as we advance in the vaccine coverage, we're likely to close in on 900,000 later in the year. How do we build in memorializing that population and the survivors and bring them forward as a motivating factor? When you were putting the 9-11 Commission together, the families of the victims of that tragedy proved to be decisive in moving forward the politics and the will to carry forward the commission when the effort up on the Hill failed just recently to get a commission to investigate the events of January 6th, the assault by the insurrectionists upon the Capitol. There was the mother of the officer Sicknick was there making her case and Sicknick's partner making a case. There was not a large human contingent present who were the victims there present. But talk about the, the staggering number of Americans who have given up their lives and the staggering number of families that have had to live with the aftermath of, and consequences of these tragic losses. Well, Steve, we've, we have uh, reached out to victims' families, to long COVID sufferers and the people and the organizations that have sprung up to represent them. And they are very, very interested in this commission. I can't speak for the January 6th commission and the, the victims who wanted that. But I can tell you there are a lot of victims' families and others who are very interested in a national COVID commission, potentially a fully mobilized millions of people. But they, in general, uh, like us, we actually don't think the 9-11 commission model will likely work for this in the current political environment. So talk a bit about what, what you think is the, the most feasible model and offer the listeners a bit of your thinking on how do you bring Congress in in some form? And, how, and we can talk a little bit more about how do you navigate the inevitable charges that are going to come from certain quarters that any investigation of what happened is just another witch hunt of President Trump. And also, what are you looking for from the White House? Because this is a president who came into power with arresting this pandemic as the top priority, and it remains a top priority. 
and it's it's an ongoing war and it's a long war and so tell us a bit what's the best model in your view and how do we get validation and buy-in from congress from this white house absolutely steve so our approach to this and i'm very flattered by the many references to the 9-11 commission model but we don't different models work for different situations that's not really the right model for this crisis which uh, is not is sprawled all over the united states involves state and local issues a lot involves global issues a lot we believe that you need an independent commission an independent commission that means it's the commissioners are not picked by the democratic and republican leaders of the congress that's not independent so that's a major difference that's a yes. major difference and that that will produce that is likely to produce a situation that mirrors the current political environment instead of working around it. So you need an independent commission. That also means a commission that does not rely on federal funds. So we have, or, uh, we have a group of funders behind us right now, four foundations that are quite ideologically diverse, but they share in common a desire to get to the bottom of the story. And they are willing to fund the commission, I believe. And an independent commission doesn't rely on congressional leaders to pick its commissioners, doesn't rely on federal funds. Now that independent commission can get authorities from an act of Congress, or if, if it turns out that an act of Congress is too hard or might compromise the creation of an independent commission, it can get a lot of the access it needs from working with the Biden administration. It can do, there are a lot of ways the Biden administration can enable such a commission to be able to do its job. You could be independent, but still have, through authorization from Congress, subpoena power. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. So you could have those two things together. Most people don't understand that. I don't. That think. is correct. That is not the 9-11 commission model. But yes, you can have those two things together. And in fact, we've actually drafted a bill with the help of a supportive senator that's basically uh, sitting in a drawer waiting for possible action, depending on what folks think is the right way to go. So one way to go is that act of Congress route that empowers an independent commission that the commission doesn't rely on the Congress for its funds. But I do think there's another way to do this in which the independent commission simply gets the facilitation it needs to get access some people and records and some key institutions in the department, the HHS department, in the Department of Defense, from which was where, which was where Operation Warp Speed was based, um, from the Biden administration. It doesn't have to be a presidential commission, and we wouldn't want President Biden to pick the commissions. But the Biden administration, if they think the independent commission is on the level and is going to do an honest job, if they think it's being composed in a way that seems straight to them, there are things that they can do to facilitate the kind of access the commission needs. So we think the independent commission approach is best for this crisis. It's more flexible, more able to do the national and global work that's required, and more to take an unflinching look, not just at how the Trump administration did, but take an unflinching look at the institutions. Yes the institutions at the federal level, but also some institutions at the state and local level. And to be able to independently say, what kind of system of public health does America need in the 21st century? In many ways, we have the system of public health we invented at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, that the fundamental structures of the system were kind of laid down in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And that system was just 
clearly unready and unsuited for this 21st century crisis. And we don't think this will be the last such 21st century crisis. So we can independently examine institutions, not just the personalities. Can I ask you a question about two problems that inevitably you're going to face if this moves forward? One is the urgency, the need to not let the moment pass, even while we're still struggling with something that may not end very soon, it becomes endemic, you have prolif- continued proliferation variants, it's, but you need to be able to move rapidly before people's attention turns somewhere else. And we're all familiar with the cycle of crisis and complacency that, that has afflicted this field of health security. The other is, of course, we're heading towards the 2022 election cycle. We're heading towards the 2024 election cycle. We know that any effort of this kind is going to draw fire inevitably from some quarters that are going to say this is this is just a witch hunt to go after Trump. So you want bipartisanship is going to be essential at success for this in some fashion, right? You need validation, bipartisanship, broad acceptance. And how are you the urgency and timing question and the and the fact that we still are living in a highly divided place in which things that go back and look carefully at what happened in the Trump era inevitably will draw those sorts of fire? Well, it's first off, it's inevitable. So if, if the answer is, well, uh, anything that honestly looks back at an important thing that happened in the past will be controversial. By the way, the 9-11 commission effort at the time was extremely controversial. And there were all sorts of arguments. I was attacked personally by both the left and the right because <laughs> the commission wasn't moving in ways that lined up perfectly with either side's preferred narrative. Though I think what we came up with has stood the test of time pretty well. But that's just an inevitable hazard. If, if a commission wants to take on the examination of a big topic that touched many millions of people, you're going to be attacked. So in a way, if you retreat from that, says, well, we just can't even try to develop a healthy, massive investigation and then provide a core narrative because there'll be people who will attack it. I think that's kind of a sad surrender of a public service and public duty. You can think ahead and act preemptively. I mean, if your commission has the right combination of people of great stature and respect that will go some distance. If you have cultivated the media to be with you, if you have done broad outreach, I would think that that would play to your advantage significantly. Yes, and actually that's exactly the prescription. You have to, you have to organize the commission in a way that assures fair-minded people that this is being run on the level, that uh, you're not uh, falling into either anybody's simplistic political narrative. But that doesn't mean you're not taking an unflinching look at the choices people made. Let me stress that point, Steve, because uh, I think it's really important. Instead of just doing a hindsight analysis in which you say, well, that turned out badly, let's throw a tomato at you for that. What really actually helps people is if you just reconstruct the choices people made, understanding the information that was available, what they thought their options were, and the choices they made under those circumstances. If you actually just do that, reconstruct their choices, it turns out the stories practically begin to tell themselves. You begin to instantly empathize with, well, what information did that person have? What information did that person not have? What tools were at that person's disposal to act in this situation? 
what tools weren't available to them. I mean, for example, the big controversies over shutting down businesses and lockdowns, a lot of the reasons that so many authorities had to resort to those blunt instruments is because they didn't have any sharper tools in their kit. They were in a situation where they were desperate about the options available. And then there's a set of choices that people were making in the early weeks of the crisis when there was so much uncertainty, like in March and April of 2020, which then can be analyzed differently from the choices that were made five and six months later, when there was a lot more information. And in some ways, maybe it's possible to be more critical about some of the choices made in the second stage. But once you actually understand reconstruct people's choices, what kinds of pressures were put on them, what they knew and didn't know. It produces a quality of empathy with the people in those situations. And then you might look at that and say that you're, and people might judge that they did poorly or they're very, very critical, but they also might empathize with what they didn't have, with the options that weren't available, with the information they couldn't use, and which instantly and powerfully tells them the kind of capacities that the government needs to have in the future. In a way, by reconstructing those choices, you can do so much to get past the stock gotcha narratives and to get into stories that instantly communicate what needs to be done in the future. When you've just gone through all of that, it did remind me the the independent panel on pandemic preparedness response that just came out with its report that was commissioned by the World Health Assembly WHO, it came out with its report. It shied away from naming names uh, in its in its document. It was cr- heavily criticized for that. But the argument was, this is about systems. This is about failure at multiple levels. This is about understanding these patterns and thinking about what more needs to happen. Now, if you really want to know about pointing fingers and blame, Read the very careful chronology that we built. Read the supporting, read yeah, the multitude of supporting appendices that we've attached. Uh-huh. Read the 13 other documents that we've generated. I mean, it was, they had a ready-made answer to, here's the piece to keep the calm and get people focused. And here are the other pieces where if you really want to be much more prosecutorial in your approach, you can go that direction. Right. I, we've been going on for a long time. I want to I want to ask a couple of closing questions. One is timing. When does this thing need to begin and when does this thing need to end, in your view? Second question, what are the things we do not know today that you you, you feel eager to make sure you can begin to know sooner rather than later? And third, what keeps you awake at night? First is timing. Uh, the answer is right away. There is a notion out there that, oh, we need to wait until we have distance and perspective. It turns out actually that that's not right. The, the people's memories don't get better over time. They get worse. If, you, if the commission starts their work today, they're not going to be able to, it'll take time to do the work and stand up to the commission. So the earliest then at which you begin really teeing up ideas for systemic reform would be next year in 2022, which is actually an ideal time to start talking about all those things. If 2021 is the year of crisis management, 2022 should be the year in which we start talking about how to make the country stronger and beyond. Also, if you wait too long, it's not like people won't then will wait on you to develop their stories about what happened in the crisis. They will develop stories about what happened and why in the crisis because it touched everyone. It's just the stories will be incomplete and often wrong. 
we saw this happen actually in the 9-11 case and where we uh, probably waited, they probably waited a year longer than they should have in even getting the 9-11 commission going. And then of course the notion, well, you know, we have to, if you wait until the war is over before you develop your plans for the post-war, you've waited years too long. I mean, when <laughs> if the United States had not started working on the occupation of Germany or Japan until after Germany and Japan had surrendered, well, there would have been no occupation government to put in place. We need a strategy for how to handle these pandemics while we're still in the struggle. We need to learn how to do better as soon as we can and, and make the changes while the memory and interest in this is still fresh. So what do you not know? Oh, lots, lots, lots. Of well, OK, so give me your top two or three. What are the things that you're saying? We, we don't know. They, we don't know how the Operation Warp Speed made its big decisions. We don't. We don't know that. We uh, really from the origins issue on which there's still huge gaps in knowledge right. for yeah. either side of this to what are the preventive strategies for the future to how we can set up a proper biosurveillance system to give us better tracking, detection and warning. Don't haven't fleshed any of that out yet on how to reconceive an American public health system and community health system. And that's not nearly fleshed out yet. We need to do a ton of learning on that front. One can just go on and on, uh, on understanding what trade-offs were possible that might have kept more businesses open if we had done a better job of helping people protect themselves at work with distributing masks. Uh, again, there's just so many things that we can learn from that have not been done yet. It's, it's actually quite exciting. So what worries you the most? You're, you've made a lot of progress. You're socializing this concept. You've gotten buy-in from an exceptional array of people. You're still talking to the White House. You're still talking to Congress. Those right. pieces are live and active elements still to be determined as to where that goes. What are you worried about? I'll tell you, my big worry is that the urgent will drive out the important. Explain what you mean. People will be so preoccupied with the day-to-day -day crisis management that they then won't have the bandwidth to lift their heads up and fix any of the big, any of the big things. They'll stop the bleeding, but they won't cure the disease that caused the bleed. They'll just tie a tourniquet and then they'll think they've cured the patient. And you see, if you do that, what my biggest worry is that Americans lose their confidence in, their, in the governance of their country. They think their country's governance doesn't have the know-how or the ability to handle big stuff. And the deepest lesson from this crisis, and by the way, Michael Lewis and Lawrence Wright in their different ways call this out too, in their books, as does Neil Ferguson very much so in his book, is we need to use this crisis to restore Americans' faith in their governance and know-how, not to destroy that faith. That's a profound point to conclude on, Philip. And I think that, you know, that combined with memorializing those who, who were lost and then and acknowledging the suffering yes, of all we're of doing their a family lot members work that. is a powerful animating idea. Your point about making sure that we restore confidence and we, that we get uh, the truth out. I mean, the, the most riveting and heartbreaking moments last week when the 9-11 style commission for January 6th failed was when Tom Kane spoke and said, the consequences, the truth won't come out or it won't come out for some time. And I think for you to be able to say, we have it within our, within our wherewithal, within our means to bring the truth out, 
in a way that's going to be done competently and fairly and pretty comprehensively. I hope so. And but to do it, we'll need a lot of help from people like you, Steve, from the Biden administration. But uh, I think actually think uh, the majority of Americans want that. And so the, our hope here is actually that the majority of Americans get what they want. Thank you. And thank you for spending the time today going through all of this. This has really been rich and really fascinating. I've heard you speak many times about all of this. And each time I learn something new and different. So thank you, Philip. Thank you, Steve. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.